0: welcome to the July 2006 podcast of ordinary means you'll find us on the web at ordinarymeans.com my name is Sean Nolan and I'm the pastor of Eucrest Presbyterian Church in 84 Pennsylvania and I'm your host today uh, normally around the table I have sitting with me uh, Matt Bowling and Peter Jones but both of them are on uh, out today so we have a very special guest with us today at the table is dr. Jack Kinnear hi Jack hi uh, Jack is the uh, you're the president, CEO, founder of Echo Hills Study Center.
1: Yeah, I, I also cut the grass and <laughs> fix the windows and whatever else you well, ba- do.
0: It's based in your home, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so you have to do and whatever else your wife tells right. you to do. Clean. You have to clean the dishes for the study center. That's true from time to time. So Jack is the um, uh, heads up the Echo Hills Study Center in Ligonier, Pennsylvania, where he is also serving as assistant pastor at Pioneer. PCA yes. in Ligonier, uh, a church that uh, some of you may be familiar with. Uh, known that R.C. Sproul and John Gerstner were once sitting in the in the pews of that church, and I don't. Neither of them ever pastored that church.
1: Uh, actually, John Gerstner was the assistant pastor in his retirement for for a few years, Okay. where he would teach on a. Well, they were. They were all basis.
0: regularly teaching.
1: Yes, and and I. I it seems to me that R.C. was not. A member of that church but he did attend there on okay. occasion okay i just that I, was before i was in the area so i don't really know the okay. details of that
0: I, I just remember hearing the stories from people who have attended that church or have taught in that church having having gerstner there replying from from the fuse uh when they would uh, when they would teach he'd be the, he'd be the one leaving the discussion um, you are, in addition to this, in addition to running a study center uh, and serving uh, part time as a pastor there at Ligonier, or at Pioneer PCA, you're also adjunct professor of New Testament at Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary in, uh, in, the Pits- in Pittsburgh, downtown Pittsburgh.
1: Yes, I am. Uh, how do you keep all these hats on? I don't know. They gave me another one. Uh, <laughs> gave I'm you also en- now director of the Doctor of Ministry program.
0: That's right. Um,
1: at Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary, which
0: which I'm I'm looking at. I'm looking good. At We're getting program. it set up.
1: It's going to be an exciting program.
0: So so they're going to keep you busy. Is this going to overrun the study center or the study center's? Con- no, the
1: study center is going to continue on. Um, this summer, I'm not doing any any special seminars. That I'm doing. I'm working on a writing project, but. Uh, Again, next spring we'll start having classes at the study center on Saturdays during the during the better weather months,
0: okay. as well as
1: I'm doing some teaching at another study center in the area, uh, called in uh, the Gibsonia area, okay. which is um, affiliated with the, the North Hills, Reformed Presbyterian Church.
0: Okay so that uh, so that's uh, the study center mainly holds the holds the study classes. I know you go out a lot into churches and do yes Saturday when, I, when classes. I set the
1: ministry up i I thought that it would be primarily a location where people would come okay and it's turned out that i I spend a lot more time traveling to churches and campus groups than i than I have people come to me
0: okay. Well, you've replaced that other study center that
1: used to be oh, there, sure, right? Oh, sure, yeah.
0: That, that, you know, we, we, that will not be named, that now dwells in Florida? That, that yeah, yeah,
1: I thought I'd come out here and start a study center right on top of someone else's former study center <laughs> and move into a church where John Gershner used to be. Mm,
0: uh, It'll keep you on your toes. Now, if, you, if you're interested in finding out more about the uh, Echo Hills Study Center, you can find them on the web at echohills.wso.net. Uh, that's the website of the Echo Hill Study Center. Now, Jack, you've also authored How to Grow in Christ, which is a wonderful little workbook. I, we give it to all of our new members. Whenever somebody goes through our new membership class, they, uh, they get a copy of How to Grow in Christ. Uh, where where did, that, um, did that come out of something you were doing in the church?
1: Actually, I was uh, teaching a class for young adults who were many of them new believers. Okay. And it just started out as handouts and after about the second time of teaching the class with these handouts of questions to study bible verses we realized that we had something that was worth putting together as a published study guide uh, structure which is how it came to be and it's been in print now for all oh, gobs and gobs of years
0: yeah pnr
1: is that pnr, a PNR? publishes it yes
0: yeah yes. uh, it's a, yeah that's a wonderful little uh, wonderful little booklet uh, now you have some books. You have
1: some books in the works. Yes, I'm working on two right now. Um, one on uh, the right, righteousness of God in Romans, and its uh, rootage in the Old Testament. And also, I'm partway through an exposition of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13.
0: Okay. Now, the uh, the one on Romans is that that's in response to some of the current controversy over justification.
1: In a sense it is, but it's not primarily a controversial text. It's not aimed at, here's what uh, this scholar says and that scholar says, and here's why they're wrong. It's primarily an exposition of what Paul means by uh, these core phrases in Romans, the righteousness of God, justification by faith, and so forth, and how that meaning arises out of his use of language available to him in the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures called the Septuagint.
0: Okay, okay. And then the, uh, the second work on the Olivet Discourse, that's arisen out of a lot of work. I know you, the Study Center, you do a whole series on... Yes, I've,
1: I've lectured on that a, a number of times, and I'm set to teach the Book of Revelation at the seminary in the spring. And so I'm trying to get the material on the Olivet Discourse done by then so it can be part of the material available for students. Okay. Because the interpretation of Revelation sits on top of the interpretation of the Olivet Discourse. If you misconstrue the Olivet Discourse, Revelation will not make sense. Yes,
0: yes. Well, it's, and many have said that Revelation is, would you agree that Revelation is John's Olivet Discourse? No. No? I, I've, well, I've heard that before because there is, the Olivet Discourse, let's see, occurs in Matthew and Mark Luke. and Luke. It does occur Matthew, in Mark. Mark and Luke. Mark and Luke. John. But not in John. It's not in John, not but then John. John
1: wrote Revelation. Yes. But I think that's one of the fundamental uh, misconceptions about Revelation. We, we tend to think of Revelation as John's book. Mm. It's, it's Jesus' book.
0: book yes.
1: John is just copying down what he sees, but it's the revelation that God gave to Jesus to, uh, to show his servants what must soon take place. And although you, uh, you would expect some verbal connection between the gospel, the letters, and Revelation, and there is in terms of how sentences are, are used and the choices of, of vocabulary, Revelation itself is far more dependent on Matthew than it is on John. In what way? Uh, there are repeatedly passages in Revelation. Where the phraseology in the Greek text is reminiscent of the phraseology of Jesus in, in the Matthew form of the gospel story.
0: Hmm. Why? How is that? How do you see that as coming to be? Is that just John's reading of
1: Matthew? No, it's because in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is saying things.
0: Mm, and in okay, Revelation,
1: Jesus is sh- saying and su- sh- and showing things, and we find the same sort of conception and the same sort of intriguing word usage.
0: So, is it found in Matthew being more of a Hebrew gospel? Yes, Matthew's
1: gospel is the most he- most Jewish-oriented gospel. Okay, unlike Mark and Luke, Matthew explains nothing Jewish to Gentile readers. In fact, isn't yet presume there are any? Uh, the book was written <laughs> to. In part to show why there ought to be go make disciples of all nations hadn't happened yet, mm-hmm. um, but it, it was written in order to uh, encourage that activity. Okay. Whereas Luke's gospel, for example, was written to that new audience of Gentile Christians, and Luke explains all things Jewish, and Luke avoids using what what I what we might call Septuagint speak. Hmm. Um, many of the phrases in Matthew's gospel. Are phrases that are found in the Greek of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Yes. And if you're familiar with that, then those words make sense. If you're not, it's very odd. And so Luke tends to give what I call the, the living Bible version <laughs> um, of what's of the material that's in Matthew. Okay. So Matthew, Jesus will say in Matthew's gospel, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing in holy place. There's no thou there in Greek. Um, Luke says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, if you look at the use of the phrases in the Matthew material, see how that language is used in the centuries that preceded in the translation of the Old Testament and in the Apocryphal writings, then you say, okay, I know what the language of Jesus and Matthew means. It means exactly what Luke says it means. Mm -hmm. But Matthew... Has the speech that a Jew steeped in the Old Testament would use, yes whereas Luke gives the paraphrase that gives the sense to someone who is not familiar with that kind of Bible language okay when we were
0: talking about that before beforehand at lunch, you and I were talking about that and the fact that when you look at uh, many of our tra- many of our English translations attempt to draw you to the Old Testament by putting in capital letters or italics or some form like that and uh, for the listener you may you may notice that when you 're reading the um, through the Gospels that Matthew is just full of that almost every page is just full of uh, capitalization if you 're a beginning Greek student. I know the the Nestle elan text does a lot of that with the with Old Testament quotation, and just every other page is Old Testament qu- quotation. You begin to see the amount that the New Testament writers were depending on the Septuagint, which is why I think your Septuagint studies are so are so vital.
1: Yes, and it's not just it's not just the citations or the deliberate allusions, which are tend to be in the footnotes. Mm-hmm. It's the use of an established known Jewish Greek vocabulary. To give you an example, in Matthew's Gospel, in the Sermon in the, uh, on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, we have the phrase in most translations something like, uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, yes. for they shall see God. And in an English ear, pure in heart sounds like sinless. Yes. And therefore, it sounds like bad news for me because I, <laughs> because I, I to see never see God at that. this rate. Yep. But the Greek phrase has a track history. And when we see how that Greek phrase is used, we see that its essential meaning is to be sincere or honest without guile. So if you come to God and you confess that you're a sinner, then you have a clean heart in Greek. Hmm. If you come to God and you presume that you are righteous when in fact you are not, then you engage in deceit and guile. And so, a clean heart is a repentant heart, not a sinless heart. In fact, the same phrase is used by David in Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart.
0: This this solves that whole dilemma when you're reading through the Psalms and you say, how can David say that? How can David declare himself to be this perfect person?
1: But that usage pattern goes back to an episode in Genesis where Abram tells Sarai that that she's to play his sister, and the king takes her to be his concubine. God stops him. And in the interchange between God and the king, um, this phrase occurs twice, in which the king says to God, God, you know I did this with a clean heart. Hmm. A heart without deceit. I honestly thought it was his sister. And God says, Yes, I know you did it with a clean heart. Hmm. So the phrase clean heart in Greek carries the meaning of sincere, honest, not deceitful, not guileful. Which, well, which now completely changes, changes everything. Everything, yep. And when you do that, when you work through the Beatitudes and you look at the usages of words that way, you discover that besides not being necessarily well translated, um, the, the Beatitudes often come off to us almost as, as law rather than gospel. But they're That's really true. Jesus' definition of what a converted heart looks like. And again, it's seeing phrases like poor in spirit and how David in the Psalms will talk about uh, himself being poor, when clearly he's not poor in the material sense. Um, blessed are those who mourn. And if you look at the use of the idea of mourning, both the, that particular word and the other connected words uh, to the idea of mourning, you see that mourning is again is often associated with repentance.
0: So it's poor in the sense of he knows himself. He, he knows, knows he, he has his... no resources himself. Yeah.
1: Mm. say, and when you do those, these kinds of language studies, it, it illuminates the sense of the text. You discover that the old and New Testament are far more interconnected uh, than they appear to be in the standard translations and that has to do with with uh, the breadth of English vocabulary that we can just we've got four or five English words that will that will translate one Greek word so we don't get that sense of repetition that's often the original language text um, and, and part of it is that as we go through the translation process. We have to be very, very attentive to the nuance of the word in English and what it does to us. We talked about this a little earlier with the word vengeance. Yeah. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Probably in, in, in the Geneva Bible when that occurs uh, or in the King James, which, which is based on Geneva, occurs, vengeance probably did not have the negative connotation it does now. But now it's a negative word. Yes. Vengeance is bad, justice is good.
0: Vengeance is what the mafia does.
1: But the Greek word translated vengeance has the word for right in it. And it etymologically means from the right, out of the right. Uh, Etymology doesn't control usage function. Uh, But when we see how this particular Greek word pronounced um, ek-dik-asis is used, we see that it refers to... Often, God's justly punishing people and paying them back according to their deeds. What we would call justice in English. Yes. So the translation vengeance is simply misconstrued in English here. It would be far better if it said, justice is mine, says the Lord, I will repay.
0: Or I'm the, I am the judge of righteousness. Right.
1: Yes, because right.
0: that, word, that word for righteousness is right there. Right. Right there. Now, you obviously, this, the, the amount of original language study that you are doing is, uh, is incredible. Uh, where, do you, where do you get the time? How do you manage? Uh, how do you, what does your day look like? What is it, or maybe I should say, what does a week look like for you, a typical week?
1: Well, I try, uh, first of all, I spend during the school year, I have um, one day a week when I'm on campus giving lectures. The way the classroom is set up is is all three of my lectures are on the same day, okay. so it's one day in. Uh, one day a week is given over to administrative work and those sorts of things, and I try to spend a good chunk of the other uh, of the rest of the week um, working on the interpretation of the New Testament text and looking at the at the background um, in the Septuagint. Um, for the usage of words, and also looking forward around it, uh, how a word is used in Josephus, Mm -hmm. who is roughly contemporary with the New Testament, and how words are being used in the Apostolic Fathers, who are just a little bit after the New Testament in terms of time. And often you can see a a continuity of of usage patterns, so you know what a word uses. Uh, One of the controversies in Pauline studies is in uh, Romans uh, 3.22, uh, 321, excuse me. No, it's 22. I'm really bad at numbers. Where in most
0: translations... There, there weren't any numbers in the original, right. so uh, what do you do?
1: Where, uh, where in most translations it's something like a righteousness of God uh, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay. And there are some who would argue uh, that that should be rendered uh, righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. to all who believe. And this is a real issue right now. Coming and and from if you simply are familiar with how the word for faith, pistis, is used and its pattern of usage, pistis followed by a genitive noun uh, referring to God or something related to God, God's word, God's truth, Christ. Everywhere where the context makes clear what the meaning has to be, uh, that genitive noun always is the object of faith, faith in, in English. Okay. Um,
0: and, not, and not a characteristic of right. the one it's pointing to. Right.
1: And that's true of the examples in Josephus, of the examples in the Apostolic Fathers, and the examples elsewhere in the New Testament. And so when uh, Chrysostom comments on that Romans text, he takes faith to mean the believer's faith. It doesn't even occur to him, to think that it means Jesus' faithfulness. Hmm. And the reason is that, that the Greek word pistis does not mean faithfulness. It means faith. However, there are certain kinds of constructions, and this is parallel to English, where pistis can take on the sense of someone who is reliable. So if you do something in faith in English, that means to be faithful. Yes, and we find a very similar construction in Greek, where you can do things. A verb is poyeo, in faith. But the word faith does not carry the meaning faithfulness. The whole phrase does.
0: It's found in the context.
1: It's found in the in the verb and in the preposition that joins it together. See, one of the problems in in, in word studies is that we tend to to be focused atom adam, atom adam, atomist. I can't say the word atomistically. That's it. On just the word, but words exist not just by themselves, but they exist in phrases that get repeated. We might call them stock phrases. And sometimes we have to look at the phrases or the structures to be able to ascertain the correct sense. And this is not a matter of becoming familiar with it. You know, if you yeah. if you if, if if you work through uh, uh, the examples in Josephus and you see that that pistis plus a genitive noun means faith or assurance or trust in, confidence in. If you work through it in the Apostolic Fathers, you see that's the case. And if you work through it in the other New Testament writers, there are no Septuagint examples of this. Okay. Um, um, and, and it consistently means faith in, to use the English phrase. Then when you come to Paul, you would say, well, no ancient reader would even thought about the other possibility. He was used to this patterned usage. Um, I like to use the example of the word run and I can say, um, the president is going to run again this year. The president went out this morning to run. The president has the runs. (laughs) And the president runs at the mouth. And in each case, you as an English reader, because of the structure of usage, immediately know the correct sense of that word. Not from its form, but from how it is is used in a structure. And the same is true of any language, including Greek. And part of the studies that I'm working on is going through and analyzing and discovering those structures so that we're able to read the New Testament with the same ears, so to speak, that the ancient reader had. So we assign to the words the, the natural meaning that they would have in terms of these customs of usage and repeated structures of usage. And all sorts of interpretive problems um, are resolved that way. And it turns out when you resolve them that way, you often end up where our Puritan forefathers ended up. Hmm. And they were, of course, much better at language study than we are. So it seems to me they were probably just discovering the same patterns in their own reading. And so naturally giving the text its correct sense, just as the president has the runs, and the president runs at the mouth, you immediately know the difference in meaning. The difference
0: in the meaning. Now, this brings me to a question. Is We don't live in a time anymore, I, so many pastors in our day and age don't know the original languages, let alone the people in the congregation. I think the last person that I met in a congregation who knew the original language was a, was a Greek lady uh, in a church I was in in California, and she knew Greek because her father had spoken Greek, because her father was nationally Greek, and she was able to transfer that over and, be, and read from her Greek New Testament. But it's so rare today. How do we... Uh, what do we need to do? Do we need to get back to the lay people knowing Greek? Do we just need better pe- trained pastors? What do we need to do?
1: Well, I think there are two things that we need to do, and they, these are doable things now, not pipe dreams. Yes. You know, teaching, teaching Greek to have your congregation is not going to happen. <laughs> um, the first is in how we handle it in the seminaries, at least in my little teeny wing of that world, uh, what I try to do is spend more time with my students actually making them read parts of the New Testament in Greek and work through the grammar, work through the interpretive process, so when they leave the pastorate, leave for the pastorate, they have had enough experience to see the value of doing it, Yes, and have developed some techniques to do that in the limits of the demands of the busy life of the pastor. Yes, The other thing that we need to, to aim for is simply a better translation. Um, do we need another one? Oh, desperately. Desperately. But we need a better one. Okay. Um, in terms of my own research, it would be fair for me to analyze it this way. That the modern translations from the ASV and the RSV forward, besides shifting from the majority text to the critical text as what they translate, sought to take the King James and preserve it and then to modernize it. To get rid of the archaisms. That's what the newer ones have done. Right. Okay. Okay. But generally, they've fallen short of the quality of the King James on the whole. Okay. And the King James, there are places where it needs to be improved. So what I'm talking about is, is working toward a day when we can do a translation that is far more sensitive to the, to the verbal connectedness of Old and New Testament through the medium of the Septuagint. Hebrew Old Testament text translated into Greek, that Greek text then being available... As a language source for the New Testament, okay. so that you hear the same words. So, for example, if you ask someone, <clears throat> anyone who's in the church, um, where is where is the word church in the Old Testament? <laughs> it's not in the Old Testament. It's not there. <laughs> it <doesn't> exists, <laughs> but it is. Um, but yes, but in but in Deuteronomy, for example, all the phrases rendered like assembly of the Lord the English all have the Greek word. Ecclesia, Ecclesia, church, in there. So that there is a verbal connectedness. And we need to work at a translation that does that.
0: Now how would we do that? Would we make the Old Testament say church, or would we make the New Testament say assembly?
1: Oh, I don't know. Maybe maybe, maybe, maybe make them all say assembly and put a footnote in there. Or make them all say church and put a footnote in there. Um, there are places where the translations, because they're not sensitive to, the New Testament part of the translation is not sensitive to the Septuagint as the as the middle step between Old Testament and New Testament in mm-hmm. terms of language. Now, Septuagint is, is is a translation; it's got problems with it; it has places that it's not very good, uh, but it provides the linguistic foundation for the New Testament when we when we look the, the at
0: that. Septu- just to explain this, Septuagint was essentially th- the Old Testament the Greek, Greek Old Testament yes. that that the New Testament writers were reading. Right.
1: And certain writers, like, like, like a writer of Hebrews, tends to cite it very closely. Okay. Uh, Paul will cite it and sometimes provide, I think, his own translation. Uh, Matthew does that, provides his own translation repeatedly. Okay. Um, there's, there's diversity there. But they're all, they all have this translation out there and its variations um, as a source of language where Jews have been using Bible language in Greek okay. so that words have value. Um, And that the New Testament reader can read a word and say, oh, I remember reading that in Psalm 130. Or I remember reading that phrase somewhere else. Okay. Um,
0: And that's what you'd like to see in a translation is a translation. So the English
1: reader is sensing the the verbal connectedness that I can see in the original language, studying in the the, uh, Greek and Hebrew. And as a result, just sees the connectedness that really was there, that was intended, and that often opens the door to the correct sense. And Sometimes it's, it's a very simple matter. Um, we were talking about this earlier, but another example in Psalm 130, 129, up to again, the last verse says, uh, And the Lord himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Most translations use the, the word redeem in English. Okay, Um, which makes no connection to, for example, Jesus um, in the Gospels when he says, "The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many." We we those disconnect for us verbally. We might think about the ideas and draw them together, but they're not. They don't jump out of this. But the Psalm text has the verb. And the gospel text has the associated noun there. One is pronounced uh, Roto and the other is pronounced Luke ron Okay. And so Jesus is clearly saying to those who know their Old Testament in Greek, what the psalm said God was going to do, I've come to do. Well, that's really great, yeah. you know, Bible theology, huh? Old Testament filled in New Testament, connectedness. Yeah. And the English reader just never hears that. And yet, when you read it in Greek, you say, well, that's obvious. And that's the sort of obviousness we need to work towards. Okay. And part of it is a matter of, of good translation. Um very normal to pontificate at this, but <laughs> one, one of the problems we have is that in the Old Testament, there's a really significant Hebrew word pronounced chesed. Yes. And the Hebrew word chesed is always invariably rendered into Greek by the Greek word eleos. And that tells you nothing. Except the Greek word "eleos" is in almost invariably rendered into English as "mercy," which is so. Think limited. of all the New Testament passages where, in your English Bible, you have the word "mercy." Wow, there's some really significant passages. Like, well, a lot of that in Romans nine and ten. You've got that significant language about mercy in the Gospels. Yes. You know, uh, uh, you know, uh, Jesus twice in Matthew quotes. Um, Uh, The Old Testament, you know, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Um, When we hear the word mercy in English, we think of the small number of passages where the English word mercy occurs in the Old Testament. Okay. Because in our translations, the, the Hebrew word that means mercy is rendered as love or loving kindness or unfailing love.
0: In the Old Testament. In the Old Testament. So we think, we think so of the we, ones that say, surely goodness and mercy will follow us.
1: Yes. Okay. Yes. And so Psalm 136, the mercy of the Lord endures forever. Repeat it again and again and again. The reader of the New Testament is thinking about that psalm because he's hearing the same word. But the English reader is not. And so when we hear the mercy of the Lord in the New Testament or the word mercy, we don't think of God's name. But as God's name in Exodus 34 is rendered from the Hebrew into the Greek, God comes down on Mount Sinai and and speaks his name to Moses. And the root word for mercy is used three times to render the various Hebrew words in the name of God. He is merciful, doing mercy, much merciful in the Greek. Well... (laughs) And then Jesus says in, in Matthew twenty three twenty three about the Pharisees, but you have forsaken the weightier matters of the law, the judgment, the mercy. Mercy. And when you hear that, as an English reader, you think of the four or five texts that have the word mercy.
0: But he's saying they've forsaken God.
1: They've like forsaken God. You're, but as a Greek reader, you're thinking about the hundreds of texts, well, that may be a bit of exaggeration, the tens and tens and tens of texts yes. that have this Hebrew word hesed rendered by the Greek word for mercy, aleos, So there is this profound verbal connectedness that the modern reader doesn't sense. And so he tends to read the Bible as separated, pulled apart. Hmm. So
0: what translation do you use in English?
1: I use the NIV because it's got big print. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm used to it. Uh,
0: do you uh, you've just always used the NIV in the churches you've been in, and that's. I
1: just well, I, I, yeah, it's my old beat up version, and yeah. I know where stuff's on the page. Yeah, um, I, I it, the NIV is is when it's good, it's really good. When it's bad, it's pretty bad. Mm. Um.
0: Now, where um, let's talk a little bit about where you've come from. We we're still uh, uh, while well, thinking about this. You've you've obviously got a great knowledge of the Greek, and I know a lot of that is because of where you chose to study.
1: Well, to some extent, yeah. I mean, I studied uh, at St. Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Seminary, which is the seminary of the Orthodox Church in America.
0: And that wasn't all of your seminary. You also, went, I also to went to Westminster. I did my first
1: degree at Westminster.
0: And that was an MDiv?
1: MDiv at Westminster, okay. I a Doctor of Ministry at St. Vladimir's, Okay. which involved working with Greek. But it's largely been a matter of just being fascinated with it. And... A number of years ago, discovering that if the New Testament writers quote the Septuagint, and that was the only access that most ancients had to the Old Testament, was only through a Greek translation, I really ought to be a little more familiar with it. And the more I worked with it, the more I discovered these verbal connectednesses that were not at all apparent through English. Hmm. but are very, very obvious if you um, are working with the Septuagint as the translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, again, there are times where the Septuagint is a less than adequate translation. Um, It's certainly not the inspired word of God. It's a translation and it has problems. It doesn't trump the Hebrew, but it provides the verbal connectedness from Hebrew to the New Testament Greek.
0: It was clearly
1: a translation that
0: the New Testament writers were using. They used it. um,
1: But just as importantly that they used it, unless you were a Jew who had some knowledge of Hebrew, or were an Aramaic-speaking Jew from the greater uh, Jerusalem environment, uh, where you would have had some ability to understand Hebrew and would have heard the Hebrew then paraphrase for you in synagogue in Aramaic, um, everybody else, the vast majority of first century Jews, Great. and almost all Gentile converts to the Christian faith, only had the translation because they didn't read Hebrew. Okay. So it, it was, it's almost like in our culture a hundred years ago, when everybody had the King James and knew it. Yeah. Even, even people who did not believe still knew its language. And that language then could be used to communicate. In the same way, the Septuagint is the language base for the New Testament.
0: Now, how long did the Septuagint continue to be used?
1: Oh, it continued to be used as the as the Bible of the Church till today in the Greek speaking world. I mean, it's very archaic.
0: I, I, yeah, I guess that's I guess yeah. that's true. Yes. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: but the early Church Fathers would have used readily it. turned to it as their right. Right. Their and own we, we have
1: those who have access to Hebrew. Um, and and we you know um, uh, you know obviously Jerome in his translation of the Latin okay uh, um, now what that. was it
0: Augusti- was Augustine Augustine using- is limited
1: to Greek okay so he's he's using the Septuagint okay all right um, certainly the Greek fathers are and we there are places where the Septuagint is inadequate and there were efforts to uh, in various books produce a better version of it that was true in Daniel for example hmm. um, um, the the Isaiah translation is spotty in the Septuagint, <laughs> in the sense that there are some of very important passages that are very poorly translated or mistranslated compared to the Hebrew. Um, you might argue that in some places they're simply reading a different Hebrew text, but you're not quite sure how they got from the Hebrew we have to, to what's there. What's there. I, okay. In a verse here, a verse there. I mean everywhere, but in a verse here, a verse there.
0: Who taught your Greek classes at Westminster?
1: I had uh, Dr. Gaffin and Dr. Poitras. For, oh, okay. for Bible studies but Mr. Sloat who is long deceased yes. uh, with the Lord um, taught beginning Greek when I was there in the 70s. Uh, that was a millennium ago. Is it, that
0: where you got your love for Greek? Was it, Did it begin in seminary? Or did it begin oh, yeah. before that?
1: Yeah, and I just try to keep at it over the years and then after uh, starting on my teaching ministry I had more time to devote myself to it um, and that's when I began to, to do the work in the Septuagint. Uh, if you have Enough vocabulary to kind of work a bit in the New Testament. The Septuagint can be overwhelming because it's a, it's a much larger vocabulary base. Okay. Um, and you have a
0: much pro- larger book.
1: Yeah, and you have the problem of, of of archaisms, where you have words that have become archaic. They're no they're no longer used in the New Testament, but they're used in the Septuagint. Um, Which
0: you get in the Hebrew quite a bit as well. Yeah, where you'll get a word like well, like the Selah in the in the Psalms is a great example of a word. Yeah. they just don't know what to do with yeah. so that makes that makes sense um, well how so you went from you went from Westminster did you go directly to St.
1: Vladimir's no 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 I, I, I was a, a pastor for uh, oh, I'm going to say 12 years in well, the OPC in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in okay. in a city called Easton in Eastern Pennsylvania okay and and uh, it was in that time when I was studying issues of, of, of worship and sacraments that another friend of mine, a PCM minister, and I decided to study at St. Vladimir's because okay. they had some experts in the early history of worship. Oh, okay. And so we studied with them in uh, the history of worship and the and the rootage of worship practices in the New Testament, uh, which is how I got to be studying it. It's just an odd seminary for a reform yeah, minister. Yeah, it's
0: not generally yeah. where a, where yeah. a reform and minister it was, would and it
1: And it was a great experience. I don't, I don't think I knew what the reform faith was till I was outside it. Really? I don't mean that in, at the level of, of intellectual conception. It was like I, you know, suddenly discovered new truths I hadn't known before. But when I was around folks from a different Christian tradition who were missing such crucial concepts.
0: Now, St. Vladimir's, is that a... That Orthodox was a, Church in
1: America. Okay. Uh, Russian Orthodox in its... Emigrant groups. Okay. Okay, but uh, English speaking. Um, it was studying there that I that I really began to see how rich was the Reformation reading of the Bible, hmm. and how they had taken the foundation in the fathers and worked it through far more thoroughly and adequately. Whereas, in my estimation, the Orthodox are essentially frozen at theological development in about the fifth century.
0: Very interesting interesting but and yet the the education you got so your your doctorate of ministry was in was it in a particular field
1: uh it focused on on liturgical studies okay okay so uh,
0: worship studies
1: studies of worship um and in particular uh my thesis project was on the lord's Supper okay uh, the, my, the other friend of mine who was doing this with me, another Presbyterian, um, he did his work in uh, the area of prayer. Okay. We looked at, in my case, at how worship in general and the celebration of the supper developed from the earliest post-New Testament documents forward. Okay. And then asked the question: How do we get from the New Testament documents themselves to our earliest examples? What sort of development took place? In those early centuries, so what's happening the between apostles?
0: Acts and the early church fathers?
1: Right. Okay. In between Acts and roughly 100 to 150 A.D., and looked at that, at, at those sort of things, and then asked, how does that affect us as Reformed Christians, with our commitment to be governed by the Word of God in all of our worship? Um, and I began to see that there were a number of areas where the church was either deficient or not well thought out. Okay. The church Um, today. The church today, meaning Presbyterian churches, uh, PCA, OPC, uh, churches who are committed to the Reformed faith, who are um, committed to the Scripture as the Word of God, uh, to the preaching of salvation through faith in Christ alone. One of those areas was the frequency of the Supper. Yes. And and my my commitment to advocating for weekly communion Yes. And my conviction that, in fact, the Supper was a part of the weekly assembly of the Christians from the first church in Acts forward.
0: Well, now, you, you and I talked about, um, funny, we've, we've mentioned on this podcast that our church here celebrates weekly communion. Amen. And we, amen, and we came to that decision after about eight, eight months to a year of our elders studying the material, studying the Reformers, uh, studying the Scripture. Particularly, how does the scripture see, uh, you know, Jesus says, as often as you do this, do this Remember, remembrance of me, do what? You know, how often is often? What is Jesus talking about? And then seeing that example in the early church of the church seemingly understood exactly what it meant. And it meant what they do in Acts 2, that as soon as they repent and believe, they are continually devoting themselves to the supper along with the apostles' teaching and prayer and fellowship. Um, or quininia in that case, which is much more encompassing than just people gathering together. Uh, now, I wish that in that eight months of study we had had your article because uh, I, I think that would have um, made some things easier. We were, we were searching for material and pieces all over the place, whereas you've got, uh, you've got that great article on the Lord's Supper. Uh, on your, it's on your website, which you put it back. It wasn't there, and now it's back there.
1: No, there was some glitch somewhere. Like I don't understand the <laughs> techie stuff.
0: It's uh, somebody didn't want it to be there. <laughs> yeah, <I don't> know <laughs> you, what got, you got
1: hacked. It disappeared. It came back. It beats me.
0: Well, it's, I noticed it was back this morning. Which it's uh, a wonderful piece on the frequency of the Lord's Supper. Now, you and I, a while back, after after our church had made the move, um, you and I got talking about Luke's use of this phrase, the breaking of bread. Yes, and that that tends to be part of the crux of the matter because if you understand breaking of bread. To be communion, then you have to understand them as having al- communion at least weekly. Whereas if you understand breaking a bread to mean you know, sitting around at a table having a meal, it's, it's much broader. You, could you talk a little bit about Luke's use of...
1: Yeah, that, that's very interesting. What we find in Luke's Gospel is that uh, we have um, several meal events. We have the feeding of the 5,000, uh, the Last Supper, uh, the road to Emmaus, a meal. Yes. Um, and we also have another event where Jesus goes to a Pharisee's house. When Jesus goes to the Pharisee's house, Luke describes that as eating bread in English. He uses the Greek verb to eat. Okay. But at the, but at the uh, feeding of the 5,000, there's no feeding of the 4,000 in, in Luke. He only narrates the one event. Um, Jesus takes bread, blesses it, Breaks it and gives it. And you have four verbal actions: take, bless, break, give. Okay. Then, when you come to the Last Supper, Jesus takes bread, gives thanks—a verbal uh, synonym for the bless, breaks, and gives. Clearly intending Luke, intending you to think about the feeding of the five thousand as underlying the meaning of the Last Supper. Okay. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus, in effect, replicates the, the setting of Israel um, in the wilderness. Um, and as God feeds them with the bread of heaven, so Jesus comes to, the, to his disciples in the wilderness and miraculously feeds them.
0: So it's important that the Israelites understood what Jesus was doing there yes. t- to, yes. to be that manna.
1: Yes, and, yes. and the feeding of the 5,000 is, 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 is uh, Im- imagery-wise, a kind of new exodus, new wilderness experience. I mean, this is obvious stuff. Yes. Um, but it should be. It should be obvious.
0: <laughs> we should know our Old Testament well enough.
1: And at the Last Supper, then we have the same four verbal actions. Not, the, not exactly the same words, but the same four verbal actions. Um, uh, take, give thanks, break, give. In which we see that the real food that God gives us is Jesus Christ crucified for us. Yes. And bear in mind that, that in, uh, um, in Luke's gospel, Luke has the words, do this in remembrance of me. Um, You don't have those in Mark and and Matthew. Those are only in Luke and Paul account. So clearly, as Luke tells the story, he's thinking to the future. Yes. All right. Then the next time those four verbal actions show up is when Jesus sits to to table with Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus. And their hearts are burning because he's been explaining the scriptures to them. And it says that he took bread, blessed, broke, and gave and their eyes were opened.
0: Which has to be, in that sense, then a much bigger thing that he's talking about there than them simply sitting down to a meal.
1: Right. But then when they go back to Jerusalem to meet with the twelve, the eleven, when they tell the story, they shorten the action down to he was made known to us in the breaking of the bread. Okay. So the fourfold action, take, bless, bless, break, give, becomes shortened down to simply break bread.
0: So it's similar to the way we take the day of the Lord's resurrection and we shorten it down to to the the Lord's day.
1: Right. Yes. Now what happens then is, that's Luke, as as Luke begins his second volume in Acts, he now has already defined for his readers these connections between the feeding of the 5,000, the Last Supper, the resurrection revealment, on the road to Emmaus uh, and the shortening of the phrase down to break bread so that in Acts 2 when it says that they were breaking bread the natural verbal connection is through that chain of connections so the breaking of bread was a continuing of the breaking of bread in the road to Emmaus event which was a continuation of the last supper so that's the natural force of the word and again, when it occurs later on in Acts, it has the same force. Was well, that Acts 20, I believe? Yes. Where, yes. Where Paul... Breaks uh, bread.
0: ...associates, they gathered on the first day of the week
1: and to, to break, break, break bread. bread. Which, again, is a phraseology, the natural meaning of which is to do what Jesus told them to do, all right? And w- in which Jesus is revealed to them as, as the as the risen Savior, the crucified Savior now risen from the dead, Okay? Um, and that's Luke's structuring of language. And if you wanted to vary the pattern, all he had to do was do what he did in the gospel, and instead of breaking bread, use the phrase to eat bread.
0: Like he did at the Pharisees' Like
1: he did house. at the Pharisees' house. Okay. So you've got that connection. Once you see that connection, you say, then, okay, when the church gathered together, it gathered together, devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread... To prayers and to the sharing or the fellowship. Yes. You say, well, those those then are the four characteristics of the Christian assembly: the apostolic teaching, the breaking of bread, prayers, and the sharing uh, with one another in, in in our goods and needs, not just coffee yes. platch, chit chat. Calvin sees that. Calvin argues for the for weekly communion based on that but he never gives the argumentation linguistically for why break bread means Lord's Supper. Yes. Well, I'm, he, and, I, and I'm saying that this is fairly obvious in Greek in Luke Acts because you keep bumping into this phrase.
0: Well, was Calvin, Calvin was probably much more dependent upon the historical basis because up until the 15th century, that had been the pattern.
1: He does mention that, although Calvin very much is concerned to build it from Scripture. Okay. As am I. And what I'm saying is is that that the that if we're convinced of the regulative principle that we should worship God only as he instructs us, then we should do the Lord's Supper whenever we gather together because that's what Jesus says. After all, Jesus never said do a sermon. Hmm. But he did say, Do this in remembrance of me, or as my memorial.
0: Well, our understanding of the sermon would be our devotion to the Apostles' teaching. Right,
1: right, right. And again, some people will see then a tension between supper and sermon. But there is no tension. It's just that we have the word, Christ, and the inscripturated record of the word, Christ, the Bible, mm-hmm. and the public proclamation of the word, Christ, and, and the sacramental uh, eating of the word, Christ they're all different forms of the same reality, Jesus Christ crucified and risen for us. And so supper and sermon don't conflict. Reformed churches are not word-oriented as opposed to sacrament-oriented, but we ought to be Christ-centered and therefore word-preaching-centered and visible word, tangible word, sacrament-centered as well. Those those belong without tension next to each other. They came into tension in history but, but for reasons, hopefully, that we're beyond now. Um, and the reformers were very clear that the it wasn't that they thought that Rome was sacrament oriented, but that, but that Rome destroyed both the preaching of the word by its doctrines, and the true celebration of the holy supper. I mean, Calvin referred to it as a damnable mass. Well, but just you know, not exactly you know, nice language to use. Well, by by
0: Calvin's time, they were they were celebrating. the The rule was that you, it, you had to have it at
1: least yearly. Yes, once a year, ordinarily on the on the night of the, of his institution, um, hence the name Maundy Thursday, which in Latin means mandatory Thursday. Hmm.
0: Now, did um, they did the priests continue to take it every day? Every day. Yes, but it was kept. But from the, the withdrawal
1: people. of the people from the cup was already well underway by the time of Chrysostom end of the 300s early 400s oh that early yes because you see Chrysostom urging the people to commune because what had happened is is that in the in the period preceding Chrysostom the supper took on um, meanings values that made people afraid of it it became a, a mysteriological thing
0: Okay, and this is and this is part of because uh, there are two questions that flow from this. I've been dying to ask you uh, that mysterious aspect of what's going on there, um, you know, the, the spiritual nature that we're partaking by faith, that Christ is present.
1: Yeah, but that's that's a Reformation concern. What's happening in the ancient church is is, is the sense that somehow this is Christ literally on the table before us.
0: Okay, so the development of the Roman idea.
1: Not yet transubstantiation. Okay. You're not going to get that until you get the recovery of Aristotle in the West. Okay. And this is still working in a, in, in a, in, in, in a Plato philosophical world, not, not an Aristotle philosophical world. Um, what you have in the, in the Fathers leading up to and around Chrysostom um, is realistic language laid next to symbolic language without explanation. Hmm. And, but the effect is that is, is, is this is such a holy thing, such a, 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 a um, weighty matter that people began to withdraw from it. Add to that that the discipline of the church, which distinguished between pre- and post-baptismal sins, hmm. gave a reason to delay one's baptism and hence one's admission to the Holy Supper. All of that's at play, all right, when the great theological writers of the Nicene post-Nicene period are producing their literature. And they all reflect that, the notion of the clergy as a priesthood had already developed. And the beginnings of viewing the supper as the church's sacrifice had developed. There was an emphasis on who could properly serve the supper, consecrate it. The whole question of how is the bread consecrated? All of those issues are floating around and produce a reaction among the laity of fear so they back away from it. And you have the clergy trying to get the people to come to the Holy Supper. Very interesting. And and we we now being beyond that, past that in history, are in a position to say, here's what the Supper means from the Bible. Mm -hmm. And here's why this should be your great delight every week. Or as I would say to people when I was pastoring, uh, Jesus invites you to dinner why aren't you coming
0: now why why aren't we coming? I mean we know the we know the Roman Catholic view, we know the Lutheran view, we know the Protestant view we know the zwinglian view w- what's happening here why Why do we need to do this every week and what are we missing by not coming to it every week
1: well Look, there are churches out there where there, are, where there are the elect of the Lord who are clearly redeemed and regenerated of the Holy Spirit, born again, where the preaching is pretty bad. Uh, the singing of the psalms and psalm-like hymns is almost non-existent, where there's you know, two 30-second prayers during the service, um, and yet God's people you know, are, ce- are not ceasing to exist. Yes. Granted that the deficiency in the reformed churches is meager compared to that deficiency. Okay. Um, so I'm not arguing that, that that somehow we're missing the grace of God in some ultimate sense because our practice is not fully biblical. But yet we can expect a fullness and a richness of the experience of Christ in the place He's appointed it. And if we neglect that place, then are we surprised if our experience of Christ is somewhat less than it should be?
0: Which is what we would call the ordinary
1: means. Yes. And all I'm arguing is is that the Holy Supper belongs in the weekly assembly of the saints, and then to really be controversial, as its central activity.
0: Yes, this is very...
1: Okay. Now... Why am I saying that? Well, because the only reason why the Christian community met apart from temple and synagogue was the one thing they could not do in the synagogue and could not do in the temple when it was purely a Jewish Christian community was the breaking of the bread. And so the Holy Supper compels the Christian assembly and creates it. As a distinctly Christian assembly, believers only, as opposed to synagogue and temple.
0: So the early Christians would have continued in the synagogue and in the temple.
1: They clearly did in the book of Acts. We can see that. Um, And it took time for the the two communities, unbelieving Jewish community and the believing Jewish community, to be pulled apart.
0: Okay. Well, now, when they're devoting themselves, though, to the apostles' teaching, is that referring to their teaching in the synagogues, in the temple?
1: That, That was primarily in the temple. Okay. Okay. And they could do that in the temple, and they could pray in the temple, but they could not break bread there. And so they were breaking bread from house to house, Luke says.
0: Okay, so that's, uh, this is my other question. And that's the
1: origin of the Christian assembly, as a distinctly Christian assembly.
0: So it's not as if in the beginning of Acts 2, or in the, in the beginning of the 40s of Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 42, you've got this breaking of bread, apostles' teaching... What you're saying is that's the overarching. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not saying they broke
1: bread in the temple. No, just down in verse 46. Down in, I think. Yeah,
0: it's, I believe 46 it, gi- or 47 gives
1: a specification.
0: They say, and they were doing this house to house
1: because of the nature of the event.
0: So it's not as if they were doing it twice a week. Yes, they're just they're getting the teaching in the temple
1: and then in their houses. They're meeting at that point week daily, um, for both. They were having continuous worship services in the opening part of Acts. And only later on do we see it reverting to a, a more um, long-term pattern of, of weekly structure, Okay. Okay. as we find in Acts 20, for example.
0: Well, I'm thinking then, moving on, this is a big leap, but 1 Corinthians 11, is Paul essentially, I know this is, we're moving to a Gentile community, but is a Paul essentially coming to a house church and beginning to develop what we now call fencing the table? Maybe I'm taking too big of a leap there.
1: Yeah, it's clear from Corinthians mm-hmm. that Paul, that the Corinthian church met every uh, first day of the week, every Lord's Day. Yes. Um, as an assembly, and they uh, intended to do the Lord's Supper. Yes. Paul says you're not because of your sin. Yes. Okay, and what Paul does not say is, therefore, do it less frequently. What he says is, do it right Okay? Yes. I mean, the the, the, the classic uh, late Protestant argument would be, well, you know, if we have it too often, we'll abuse it, so let's do it less frequently. Well, they're abusing at Corinth. Paul doesn't say, don't do it. He says... Do it right. Do it right. Clean up, clean up your act. Clean up your act. Um, and there are three references to the Lord's Supper in Corinthians. Uh, in in uh, the opening chapters, and then in, in uh, uh, 10, and then again in 11.
0: Okay, so when he gets then to First Corinthians, he's correcting. This is this is what I'm thinking: is that your your you're typical evangelical who is reading Acts chapter two, and they see they were taking bread house to house. Uh, you see, he's going to read that as you know there was no there was no structure. This was a house church. There was uh, you know there was nobody presiding. You know where's the pastor presiding over this? That's that's how Acts 2, those later, the later section of the 40s, gets read.
1: Yeah, but that's clearly not what the text intends to say. First of all, um, we, we, have, we have 12 apostles. So we have no idea what they were doing in the house-to-house meetings. We assume they were attending severally to them. Secondly, we have the whole problem of this distribution, which creates uh, the offices that we see Stephen, for example. Yes. Yes. Uh, Fulfilling, um, so so the idea of of a of a house church uh meeting willy nil, nilly willy doing its own thing with any out of any organized structure is absurd. To read out of Acts, that's something we're when, when this is all being all being done under the oversight of the apostles, and they then set up a a government structure below them, Stephen and the other uh seven, other than the seven. Or Stephen, and he's one of the seven, um, to provide even more government structure.
0: Now, Justin Martyr, when he writes about what occurs at the at the typical service, says that he he demonstrates that it's weekly communion. Mm -hmm. But then he goes on to say, and then the deacons take. I'm not sure if the word I'm trying to remember what the word used there is. Uh, but it 's not it, it doesn 't seem to be the elders or the or the bishops, but yeah. it 's the deacons who then take some to those who are not present right now, do you relate that then to this formation of deacons in would you relate that to the formation of what deacons in uh, ex
1: it, it seems to be obviously connected in some way okay I mean, we don 't have a, one of the problems with the apostolic fathers up through Justin is we just have so little literature okay alright so it's, it, 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 there's a fair amount of inference happening no. okay um, just because we don't have I mean the, the entire Apostolic Fathers is one volume <laughs> so you know it's not much more than the New Testament
0: so we just don't see shall, how they got we
1: don't see how the connection but there's an ob, obvious connection in terms of the structure uh, between the, the seven in, in Acts and then the deacons in uh, Justin Martyr okay and again, remember, at least up, up until Paul's letter to Corinth, and maybe well beyond that, the supper was taking place in the context of a full meal. It had not yet become a truncated meal of just bread and cup. This was their, their love feast. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was a meal of ordinary nourishment and a meal of spiritual significance at the same time, as Passover was. Yes, And only after the advice of Paul and Corinthians, sometime after, do we begin to see then the movement away from celebrating the bread and cup in the midst of a complete meal to celebrating it by themselves without the rest of the meal present, as and we now have.
0: It. Do you see any difficulty with going back to it being a meal?
1: Yeah, we're probably in the same problem that, that uh, they had in Corinth with, you know, some <laughs> people we went away hungry and some people got drunk. No, well, okay. not well. us, because we use grape juice, but...
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'd have to uh, follow the fundamentalist circles. Um, gosh, we I, we could go and we could go and talk for a long time. Will you come back? Love to do it. Uh, let's close with uh, just a couple questions here. Let's first off, where should folks who are interested in reading about the frequency of the supper? Where should they turn to? What should they be reading? Obviously, I would I would highly recommend your article on your website.
1: Yes. Um I have actually a longer work on that, okay. which is available from me in an electronic form. So
0: if they, is your email address on the website? Yes, it is. So if they email you...
1: Yeah, we can get an electronic uh, form of it. Um, that's uh, book length.
0: Okay, and that's um, your, the website, is echo, again, is echohills.wso.net.
1: Uh, yes, that's because I'm cheap and I don't have my own domain name yet.
0: <laughs> we'll work on that. We'll get. We'll see if we can get you something. We can. Uh, but what we'll do is we'll put that on the. Um, uh, we'll put that on our ordinary means blog. When we post. Uh, when we post this, we'll put up your website and direct people to it. Uh, what other uh, What other books are there? Other places you would direct uh, people to? There this are topic? Uh,
1: several works uh, by Hughes Oliphant Olds mm. that are very helpful, um, especially his worship according to the Reformed tradition or worship. Okay. Yes, a very very helpful book. Some variation of that phraseology, uh, very helpful. Uh, I believe it's worship reformed according to the scripture. Is that? No, this is the earlier one. Oh, okay. Um, but that would be good too. Okay. Um, and uh, um,
0: yeah, anything by Olds on the uh, yeah,
1: his his work is excellent, and he's worship
0: a, yeah
1: a, a a historian of this material in a way that i'm not i'm basically focused in new testament studies
0: now who are you reading in Semin in your studies at saint vladimir's
1: well in particular for me calvin okay um but primarily working with the ancient fathers studying how calvin used them and agreed and disagreed with them and then and then also doing studies on how we get from the New Testament to what is the clear pattern of the ancient church by no later than 85 or 90, which is a weekly assembly of both word and sacrament, sermon okay. and supper. How yes. do we get there? And I'm saying you can see that in the New Testament. Definitely. And, and the, what we see in Justin Martyr, um, uh, another century later than that, or what we see in uh, the Didache or in the letters of Ignatius, is the pattern established by the apostles themselves in the life of the church simply continuing. Calvin wanted to revert back to that and could not for a bunch of practical reasons. Um, We're in a position now where many of those issues no longer exist for us. We don't have a state church. Membership in the church is no longer tied to the civil order. Um, All of our churches are now gathered churches so that we don't really have the problem of Nominal believers who are believers by virtue of their uh, needing to have that status for political, social reasons. Hmm. Um, They're here because they want to be here largely. When we do have persons who need discipline, we've got a structure to deal with it. We no longer have the the problems that kept the reformers from implementing uh, a full restoration of the nature of Christian worship, which they were seeking to do. Okay.
0: Now, how about um, for the layperson, tools to help them understanding the Greek?
1: Actually, one of the nicest tools you can have is, is a Bible Works by Hermeneutica. Okay. Um, and what they've done is they've, they've tagged the King James and, I think, the New American Standard to a Greek concordance. Okay. So that the lay person can use this Bible study program use the simple interface, not the complex interface, and turn on one of these two tag translations and when he floats his cursor over over the English word, it pulls up the Greek word underneath it and okay. the definition okay and that 's helpful with this with this important uh, proviso. a little Greek is dangerous okay <laughs> if, if, if you either. really don 't read the language, just be careful before you. Think you've discovered some brand new and supreme truth from yes, the Greek we, word you've looked up. You, there may be something you don't know about the grammar or the word usage. Uh, you know, I've had some fun argument, fun conversations with people who made a little bit too much out of Greek because they didn't really actually read it.
0: Okay, now how about something like uh, what is the, There's a there's a version of the Bible, um, not the life application. There's one that gives you after certain phrases gives you a couple words in parentheses. Have you seen that translation? No, I, I haven't. The name of it is escaping me. I just saw You don't it. mean the Amplified Bible. Amplified Bible. That's oh, yeah, I'm that's worthless. Of.
1: It's worthless. I'll just confuse the heck out of you. Okay. Because you have no way to... It gives you all these possible meanings of the word, and you don't know which is the right one. Um, it's the same problem that the beginning Greek student has. He looks up a Greek word and sees four possible meanings. And Therefore, he assumes that any, any one of those meanings may go in any particular place that word is found. Well, look up the meanings of the word run...
0: And you cannot apply. Yeah.
1: Again, it's when you read the language, you become accustomed to its patterns of usage. Yes. And its structures, and those are key to interpretation, as they are in English. And if you want to see that, just talk to someone who's not a native English speaker and use the four senses of the word "run" that I used, and you'll confuse the heck out of him. Because he's only got his dictionary definition; he doesn't have that sensitivity to usage. Yes, he doesn't understand it. And, 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 and laymen who are working with the Greek need to just keep that in mind, so they don't—they don't, you know. Uh, so,
0: so they don't read somewhere that, don't, don't that read somebody it. Yeah. that somebody went out for a run and, and think that they have a personal problem. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, on that note, Jack, thank you. Thank you very Thanks much for coming and, and being here at the table, and uh, look forward to uh, to having you back. You're local, so we'll we'll, we'll have you back again. Uh, You have been listening to the July 2007 podcast of Ordinary Means. Uh, Ordinary men calling you back to the ordinary means of grace. May the Lord now bless you as you go and seek him, Uh, not through just any means, but through his ordinary means of grace.